This is a Podcast 225 production. The issues. What's going on now? What's happening in the state? The people. Carl Dabity. We've got Michael Shingle, Taylor Moore, Jay Darden, Congressman Garrett Gray, Richard Condon. He is Ryan Clark, Sharon Weston Broom. The podcast. And we're going to talk about that. This is the Clay Young Show. Up, up, and away we go with episode 207 of the Clay Young Show here on podcast225.com and on the Apple Podcast app. Are you enjoying that summer out there? Across the country, talking to friends in different parts of America. Some of them are having some of the same heat issues we're having down here in the South. It's all good. I'm used to it. Others are in other parts of the country celebrating cooler temperatures. I was just having lunch with a buddy of mine who was in Utah, and he was talking about how it was so cool there that they saw snow mists around them. Not really a story I wanted to hear as we're experiencing 85% humidity and what feels like 105 degree temperatures, but it's all good. Being on this side of the ground, experiencing warm weather is better than I assume being on the other side of the ground experiencing warm weather would be. Know what I'm saying? Anyway, we got another good show for you today. Detective Tom Lang, retired LAPD officer, is going to be with us on the show. This month marks the 25-year anniversary of the murders of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. And it is such an interesting period in history as it relates to this story that captivates so many in this country, yours truly included. And it seems like there is always over the years a new wrinkle. I mean, this this gruesome murder or these gruesome murders captivated the nation for well over a year. and, And the direct aftermath... There was always something with O.J. Simpson popping up, whether it be some road rage incident with someone in California uh, on the way on to and through him trying to do TV and then ending up back in trouble again with the robbery in Vegas, where he ultimately served nine years. And by the way, as much as most of you know, I believe he is guilty of murdering Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. I think it was ridiculous that he got nine years for armed robbery when the property he was going after was his and he wasn't even the one with the gun. So I think that was that was that was ridiculous. Come on. To be fair, I have to admit that. But in the case of these murders, I believe he's the guilty party. And if you say, well, how can you say that, Clay? What about it? Read the book Evidence Dismissed by Detective Lang and Detective Van Adder. Read, read it. Make up your own mind reading the book and you could tell me everything you hear me saying, everything you hear Detective Lang saying is, is absolute garbage. You don't believe it. Just read the book. I've said that to people. Read the book. Now, so we'll, we will talk with Detective Lang in just a bit. Just got a couple thoughts about a few things randomly before we get into that interview. First up, as I record this open, there is going to be a presidential debate with Democratic candidates 
this evening as I record this. And I've had two people ask me about the debate so far. And I said, I'm not watching it. Not watching either side. It's June of 2019 with the election being November of 2020 with the real meat cutting air quotation marks period of this not even happening for another six months. Why would I want to subject myself to wall to wall politics right now? It's during the summer. It's supposed to be the time of the year where we move a half a click slower, where we are enjoying family and friends and taking the opportunity to just revel in the sunlight and everything that's going on. Politics is the opposite of relaxation. All it will do is raise your blood pressure level. So here, let me give you some unsolicited advice, okay? You didn't ask for this advice. I'm going to give it to you. Let me look out for you because you are here listening to this podcast. Take a break. Take a break. Separate yourself from it for for a little while. And I know a lot of people are already doing that. They just stay away from it because it makes your head hurt. Just take a break. I hope this thing draws record low ratings. I hope anything like this going on right now draws record low ratings. And please don't tell me anything about where is your consciousness? Where is your sense of civic pride? It's here. But it doesn't reside anywhere in politics right now which is almost the opposite of getting things done because people just want to say what they think people want to hear in most cases. And that's one thing about President Trump. Whether you like that guy or hate that guy, he is who he is. Speaking of political correctness, and this is the second point I want to make. Driving into my office this morning, I was listening to sports talk for some of the same reason I was telling you about avoiding politics. Every now and again, I'll check up and there's some shows that I will listen to to hear what they have to say for the entertainment value of it. And in some cases, some some information, too. And I hear this morning that the NBA commissioner, uh, 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 Adam Silver, Adam Silver is going to be doing something that relates to the way we refer to the people who own the NBA franchises. So I'm going to play something for you from TMZ with Mr. Silva, Silver himself talking uh, about this. Check this out. Good afternoon, Adam. How are you? I'm great. Congratulations on the season done. Another season and you got to come up. So I, I, I got it. So I got to ask you. So the 76ers owner moved away from the term owner and now goes managing partner, right? Um, do you see that happening more in the NBA? Do you like the idea that moving away from that term owner? I, I do. I don't want to overreact to the term because, yeah. as I've said earlier, people end up twisting themselves into knots, avoiding the use of the word owner. Yeah. But we moved away from that term years ago with the league. We call our team owners the governor of the team and alternate governors. But so I, I think it makes sense. As, as I said, I, I, I don't want to overreact. And it, you'll find the word 
throughout memos over the past decade in the NBA, but I, I'm sensitive to it, and I think to the extent teams are moving away from the term, we'll stick with using governor. Have you had, had uh, positive feedback from some of the players and whatnot from this? Yeah, I, again, uh, players have gone both ways. I think a few players have actually spoken out and saying the greatest thing that ever happened was when Michael Jordan was able to call himself an owner, but of course Thank Draymond you. Green has been very public about the fact yeah. that we should be moving away from the term, and I completely respect that. But, you know, it being 2019 and whatnot, you know, maybe other sports will start taking suit towards it. To, to each his own. Who are you most excited? What player most excited? Okay, that is the most ridiculous thing I've heard today. I don't want to say ever, because there's still tomorrow, and if I think hard enough, there was probably something more ridiculous I heard yesterday. But why bend over backwards to make something that isn't an issue an issue? Clearly, the connotation or, or the reference they are making there is to the, the phrase owner as it applied to slave owners, people who owned human beings as property many, many decades ago. That and this are in no way the same thing. So if you own your house, do you now become the governor of your house because you don't own it? Because you have family that lives there? If you own a car, are you now a car governor, not a car owner? I mean, come on, y'all. Well, when were people who owned slaves paying slaves millions of dollars a year and putting them in position to make even more in the way of millions? Listen, I get it. Slavery was awful for for this country and for millions of people. I'm African-American. I get it. I get it. I get it. This is not that. We got to cut this out. This is dumb. This is dumb. If I own something, I own my business. I am not the governor of my business. It's mine. The highs, the low, they are mine. The work and responsibility is mine too, primarily. But we can't be bending over backwards to do what? Why is this a thing? These two things are not the same thing. Someone who owns a franchise, which is a business that employs someone in a sports league, is not the same as some old peckerwood 100 years ago who owned people and kept them on the grounds of his property. I mean, it's just so silly. And this, again, is the reason why so many people check out on this. And Draymond Green, who's all of, what, 26, 27, turning, twisting to make these two things in, in some way relatable or correlation between the two. It's like, come on, man. And somebody in the room has got to be a grown-up and say, stop. Let us not look stupid here. Let's, why doesn't someone become the dissenting view? And, and the owner, as you heard him say, we don't want to over-re- overreact. But when they pull people into a room and explain to them if they don't know. This person owns this thing which makes them the, say it with me, owner. They don't own you. You are under contract with them. They don't own you. I just heard that and thought I'd share it with you. Got my blood pressure going. So, how about the O.J. Simpson 
saga as it began. It all began with the murders of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. What happened leading up to the incident that took place on that night in June? And then in the direct aftermath, what went on? Let's try to answer some of those questions. Promote your business or organization on podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. This is Jeff Leduff, retired chief of police for the city of Baton Rouge. I'm Kelly Leduff, co-owner of Open Eyes Safety Training and Consulting. Open Eyes is focused on providing quality safety solutions that give businesses and employees the skill set needed to recognize and react to dangerous situations. On a daily basis, we hear yet another story of workplace violence or active shooter. Open Eyes offers a unique approach to keeping you and your businesses safe through site analysis, technology recommendations, policy review, and employee training. To set up a consultation for your business, call us today at 225-313-9713 or visit us at our website at openeyesafetytraining.com. We say keep open eyes because 10% of our population cause 90% of our problems. See them before they see you. This is The Clay Young Show. Back with retired Los Angeles police detective Tom Lang, who is uh, one of the authors of the book Evidence Dismissed. It is a great, great read. I bought it a couple of years ago. It is the inside story of the police investigation of O.J. Simpson in the direct aftermath of the murders of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. Detective Lang, how are you, bud? Good. How you doing, Clay? Good speaking with you again. You too. Uh, before we get into this and talk about the 25 years since all of this started to unfold, we got a chance to be together down in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I had a chance to watch you give a talk on the Simpson investigation and the book Evidence Dismissed and tell people about some of what they did not know. But before then... Man, you got to have your first po' boy at Drago's. <laughs> and it was pretty darn good. <laughs> I, I, listen, you, you, I, it was so funny we were laughing because, Tom, it, this event, CrimeCon, is a huge event. It's like Comic-Con, but it's focused on high-profile uh, criminal stories and cases. And, and we were meeting, and they had gone to Drago's, and they got a salad. And I asked them how it was, and Tom is like, yeah, it's okay. No one goes to New Orleans to get a salad, okay? And so I said, no, no, you got to get something that's deep fried over here. So uh, it was great, and I enjoyed spending time with you there. Talk about that event a little bit before we get into all of this. Sure. Uh, CramCon, I think this is their third or fourth year, and it's a big, big deal with a lot of true crime fans. You know, they've done a lot of surveys over the years, and something like 70% of these fans are women, and women just really go for this true crime stuff, television, uh, podcasts, I mean, any any other 
anything else you can think of, but women are really into this stuff. And they must have had, I think they said, between six and 7,000 people there. And they had breakout rooms and for four or about three and a half days. And they had some uh, pretty heavy-duty people with some pretty heavy-duty cases over the years. And we were able to put on our uh, evidence dismissed. Uh, we had an hour up there, and that's with a retired uh, federal marshal by the name of uh, Art Diedrich. And we were able to discuss uh, the uh, evidence dismissed in a lot of the areas that uh, were missed. And I think there might have been, I don't know, maybe 600 people in there. Oh, no right? question about it. And there were... There was a bunch, a bunch. And what really struck me after 25 years is the subject matter. We were talking about the evidence that wasn't used. Mm-hmm. And it's the amount of people who didn't realize it. There and were gasps in the room. All these years and didn't realize all this stuff. It not even been used. Yeah, there were gasps, several gasps in the room after you had announced some of what had gone on. So Detective Lang has been on before. We we did a couple of extensive conversations about the book Evidence Dismissed. And if you haven't heard it, we're going to delve into some of this again because, you know, it, there is so much information that I know you don't have because I didn't have it. But let's go back to that night in June, June 12th of 1994. Uh, and and the timeline, and please correct anything I get wrong in this, it goes as follows. At about 6.30 p.m. L.A. time, uh, Nicole Brown and her children and a few other people go have dinner at a restaurant there uh, called Mesaluna. Uh, Mesaluna was where they were at 8.15. Uh, Brown and her children, they leave Mesaluna and they stop and they get ice cream. Somewhere a, a quarter after 9 o'clock, Nicole Brown's sister calls Mezzaluna to say that her mother had left her glasses at the restaurant and Ronald Goldman, who was a waiter at Mezzaluna, volunteers to drop the glasses off. Now, between 9 and 9.30, Cato Kalin, who was a house guest, he stayed in one of the bungalows behind O.J. Simpson's home, he leaves with O.J. Simpson to go to McDonald's to grab something to eat. They get back about a quarter to 10 o'clock. Somewhere shortly after that, Goldman, between 9.40 and 9.50, Goldman leaves the restaurant with a white envelope that has Nicole Brown's mother's glasses in them, and he intends on taking those back later that evening. At about a quarter after 10 p.m. that same night, one of Nicole Brown's neighbors hears what sounds like a dog barking constantly and wailing at times. Now, at 10.25... Around O.J. Simpson's house, a limousine driver from a service gets to O.J.'s home. At 10.40, Cato Kalin says he heard three loud thumps on the outside wall of his room. Uh, between 10.40 and 10.50, Alan, Parks, the Alan Park, the name of the limousine driver who's there to pick Simpson up to take him to the airport, buzzes the intercom a few times trying to get a response from inside of the house. At 10.55... He calls back to the office and tells them, hey, this guy's not here. I don't think anybody's home. His boss tells him, wait until about 11.15 because Simpson is always late. Sometime right before 11 o'clock, Park says he sees what appears to be a black male around six feet tall, maybe 200 pounds, walking across the driveway toward the house. The lights come on in the house at some point after that. At about 11 o'clock, Cato Kalin goes to the front of the house to check on the noise. He sees the limousine driver at the gate. 
Uh, a few seconds later, Park again buzzes the intercom and Simpson answers this time. He tells Park, I overslept and I just got out of the shower. Between 11 and 11.15, Simpson puts some bags outside of the house to be put into the limousine. At a quarter after 11, he leaves for LAX. At 11.35, the limousine arrives at LAX. At a quarter to midnight, he leaves on an American Airlines flight headed towards Chicago. Slightly after midnight, about 12.10, the bodies of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman are discovered outside of her townhouse. At about 5 a.m. that morning, near about, detectives Tom Lang and Phil Van Adder arrive at Nicole Brown's home. What did I get wrong in that uh, timeline, Detective? Actually, you didn't get anything wrong. You did a pretty good job getting all that in, although there's some other finite stuff we could discuss at the time of death. And that's what I want to be able to do because I want to get into the hours after that. But but based upon the timeline that I just articulated, color in the circles that we would not have. Sure. Uh, Okay, getting... uh Around this is ha- having to do more with the uh, with the time of death. We have uh, a man walking his dogs about ten thirty at night. He's in the alley directly across from and west of the murder location behind Bundy. He's walking uh, south in the uh, in the alley, and he hears what sounds like two men arguing. He hears a gate clanging, and he hears somebody holler, "Hey, hey, hey!" This particular uh, witness, a man by the name of Robert Heistra, has two dogs, and he did not purposely walk the dogs on Bundy because he knew that Nicole had an Akita, and the dogs really didn't get along, and there'd be a lot of barking if they walked by the house. So he's in the alley, and he moves out closer to the mouth of the alley, right on Dorothy, which uh, intersects Bundy, just south of the uh, Bundy location. And he hears this hollering. It sounds like an arguing, a couple of men arguing, but he can't make anything out. And then he looks up a moment later, and he sees a, a vehicle that he believes to be some kind of a, uh, a Cherokee or a Ford Bronco-type, white in color, going at a high rate of speed down Dorothy. It turns and takes off down the street at a high rate of speed. So this is about around, he believes, about 1030 uh, then we go just after that at close to 11 o'clock, perhaps around 1040 or something like that. We have a woman driving her vehicle on the way to a market uh, and, and on San Vicente Boulevard, which is just north of the Bundy location. I'm a woman by the name of Jill Shively. Jill Shively is approaching Bundy. She's going eastbound, and all of a sudden she... Uh, sees a white Bronco in front front of her going northbound on Bundy. She has the right-of-way, as does another vehicle going the other way, going west. But this white Bronco stops and forces his way through the uh, red tri-light signal there, and she recognizes the uh, driver to be O.J. Simpson. She is familiar with him, knowing that he lives in the neighborhood and has seen him before, but she says that he was very angry trying to get through the red light. There's another gray Nissan that's going the opposite direction that she is on San Vicente, and that Nissan is forced to stop uh, by Simpson. There's a few words exchanged, and Simpson is yelling at the driver and the Nissan to get out of the way, 
and Nissan just pulls to the side, and Nissan and Simpson goes on through uh, the uh, signal there at San Vincente, continuing uh, north uh, from Bundy. Now, later on, uh, this woman uh, goes to this uh, the market that is called the Westward Hole Market. It closes at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night, and so she said it had several minutes. It was still open by the time she got there. So she's thinking that this is maybe 1040, 1045, somewhere in there. Now, as you mentioned, we have Alan Park, the limo driver, arriving initially at 1025 and getting no response from the inside. But about 1050, he sees a man who he later identifies as O.J. Simpson walking from the Rockingham Gate across the front yard into the home and enters. Now, he's at the Ashford Gate around the corner. Uh, prior to him arriving, and when he first arrived, he went by the Rockingham Gate and decided to go around to the Ashford Gate. He says there was no vehicle, no Bronco or anything else parked at the Rockingham Gate when he first pulled up. When he sees this man walk in the house, the lights come on. He believes it to be Simpson or possibly Simpson, so he calls in on the outside phone, and he gets Simpson, who... And you've already mentioned that he said he overslept and just uh, just got out of the shower. So uh, once he's there, Cato comes out and he opens the Ashford gate and allows the limo to drive in. And Simpson soon comes out with golf clubs and a few bags. And there's one little uh, travel bag, a half-moon-shaped travel bag that he brings out and he puts it on the driveway. And uh, Alan Park, the limo driver, and Simpson start loading up the stuff, and Cato reaches over for this little half-moon-shaped bag and grabs it, and Simpson jumps up, and he says, no, no, I'll take that. Don't, don't worry about that. And he picks up this small half-moon-shaped bag and puts it in the back seat with him. So they all get in the limo, and now in park, and Simpson take off uh, for LAX. And now en route, uh, Alan Park says that... Uh, Simpson was complaining a little bit how warm it was, and it is a June evening, but it wasn't all that warm. But it was warm enough for him to want to lower the windows in the back, and Park says he looked seemed to be sweating a little bit and maybe a little overheated for one reason or the other. So they arrive at LAX, and they pull up at American Airlines, which is on the second level, and there's hardly anyone around. It's uh, late again. It's after 11 p.m. on a Sunday night. Well, hold on, hold on. Before before you go forward, because I know where you're where you're about to go, and and another piece of evidence that people didn't have. But I wanna I wanna backtrack to a couple of of diamonds that you dropped in in your response to me about the timeline. Two of which being the two people who say they encountered what appeared to be O.J. Simpson in a white Bronco that would have been, at, based upon the timeline, sometime directly after the murders. Let's talk a little bit more about them. Okay. Uh, going back just a little bit, the witness with the dogs, Robert Heister, believes the time to be around 1035. So we got to think that's 1033, 34, 35, 36, 37, somewhere in there. If you uh, leave that house uh, and go up to San Vincente, it's, it's probably not even a two-minute drive, maybe a minute and a half. So that timeline fits with what Jill Shively and the other driver experienced when Simpson came through the light, through the red light northbound on Bundy at a high rate of speed. That all fits, and it fits right on up to the to the point where uh, Park sees him pulling into the uh, into the uh, Rockingham home. Now, we, we did that on a, Friday, on a Sunday night about 10.30, 10.35. We 
We ran that distance between Bundy, the murder location, and Rockingham, and we did it three different ways. We did it by going the regular speed uh, the traffic allows, by stopping for traffic lights, just kind of taking our time, and it took something over four minutes to do that. We did it code three in a police car. It took about three and a half minutes. We did it without code three. That means red lights and siren. We did it without that, just jumping a couple of lights, and, and it was a little, uh, uh, little over three and a half minutes. So the point here is at no time did it take any more than four and a half minutes on a Sunday night at about 1035 to leave the, the, Rock, the Bundy location and arrive at Rockingham. So all of this fits. As the crow flies, Bundy is like only two miles from the Rockingham home. So all of this fits as far as all of these witnesses go and in regards to this particular timeline. And so at this point, we, and just so there, so you know, and this is going to come up again when we get to the part of the, the detective team turning this case, giving this case to the district attorney's office is that there are several pieces of information that many of you may not have heard and that there were people who can put Simpson leaving uh, the area near or at Nicole Simpson, Nicole Brown's house at some point directly after the murders. Now, when when I interrupted you, you were getting ready to describe the scene at the airport as Alan Park gets there with Simpson. Sure. Uh, again, the uh, limo pulls up and parks American Airlines. There's very few people around. He pulls up and about 10:20, about 10:25, but I'm sorry, about 11:25 or so, uh, 20, 11:20, 11:25, right in that area. They pull up and a sky cap by the name of James Williams comes out and he's assisting them unloading the limo of the golf clubs and the bags and everything else. So they start taking things inside, and the last time James Williams sees Simpson, Simpson is standing next to a trash container by American Airlines. Now, there are two trash containers, one to the left, one to the right. They're about 44 inches high. They're square. they got four sides opening on a flat top. So James Williams thinks nothing of it. He's taking the things inside, as is Alan Park. He's attempting to do that, or assisting uh, Williams bringing all the luggage inside. Now, unbeknownst to anyone, and back behind the limo is a small, uh, low-profile sports car. I believe it was a Triumph, with another man sitting in it who sees the limo pull up and identifies Simpson. He says to himself, I mean, hey, there's O.J. Simpson, and... He sees him unloading the luggage and everything else, and he's there to pick up his wife, who works at the counter at American Airlines. Well, it's after 11. She's running a little late. So, again, it's about 11.25, and he looks behind him inside to see if he can see his wife coming, and he can't see her. And as he turns around, he looks the other way, looks back towards Simpson, and Simpson is standing, again, next to the same trash container that James Williams says he saw him there, with a little, that half-moon-shaped travel bag we discussed earlier right. sitting on top of the trash container, and he's removing items from this little half-moon-shaped bag out of the bag and stuffing them down into the trash container. When he's through, he zips up the little bag, picks it up, and he walks on inside. Now, bear in mind, this is before the bodies were found. This is before anyone knows anything. So <clears throat> um, months go by. And but before before this happens, it's revealed in the media that 
O.J. Simpson might be a suspect in the murders that occurred about 10.35, 10.45, almost 11 o'clock that evening. Well, this man saw Simpson just after 11. He's thinking, well, that's too close. I don't think he could commit murders and still be in a limo, drive the limo to the airport and go on inside because I just saw him a little after 11 o'clock. So he calls the defense. And he tells them their story about Simpson and what he was doing, removing items, putting in a trash container. Well, they say they'll get right back to him, and, of course, they never do. They don't want to hear a witness like this, obviously. Several months pass, and we go all the way to, uh, it's like March, well, I think it's March of... Uh, 1995. Well, wait, before you go on to there again, because we're working through the through the timeline, I, I neglected to ask about something else in the buildup to you and Detective Van Adder getting called. Um, tell You talk about it in the book. You describe in very great detail that morning and the routine that you went through as you were preparing to leave and how long you had been there. Uh, and, and without that, because I think people ought to buy the book, let's talk about what you saw and your reaction when you arrived at Bundy. Uh, the location and time of the murders? No, no, just what you saw. Like what you saw when you got out there. I mean, obviously, it was described to you that there were two victims there. Yeah. But, you know, we can't be there. But when you got there, kind of talk about what you saw. Sure. All right, well, the uh, Bundy Drive was blocked off on both sides. From Dorothy to the north, maybe half a block or a block or so north of the uh, actual murder location. Uh, and this was very early on uh, Monday morning, the 13th. The concern was the following morning, within a few hours, uh, Bundy Drive is known as a very busy street between San Vicente and Wilshire with a lot of people going to work. So we did want to uh, have a lot of people around, and certainly not the media, and maybe uh, interfere with our investigation. So the decision had to be made whether to open up Bundy or keep it closed down. Uh, so we kept it closed down for a while. But when you first arrive at the scene, we're met by the first responders and a couple of detectives, uh, Furman and his partner from uh, uh, the West Valley, West, uh, uh, West Los Angeles Division, who are the geographical on-call team. We have 18, at the time, 18 geographical divisions in the city. Each has their own detectives, and the geographical unit will usually respond before we get there. Now, we're not any big shots or better than anybody else, but we do have more time usually and experience in handling high-profile cases, and we get called out by the chief or whomever else when they feel that we have more expertise or perhaps more time and more resources to handle high-profile cases. So we were called out. West L.A. was already there. Uh, when you pull in, you log in with the, uh, with the officer with the, who logs the people in, and we're given a walkthrough. And we were given a walkthrough by Detective Phillips, who was the uh, senior to Furman, and with Furman, and they gave us a little walkthrough to show us what they had found when they first arrived. Now, at a murder scene, you have a little pathway that the original detectives uh, make that everybody keeps on, and you don't wander off of it so as to not step on any evidence or blood or anything else. So they had this little path laid out for us, and we went through the rear garage area, and they showed us various things that they had found. 
Uh, part of that, of course, is the bloody footwear impressions, uh, the uh, trailing of blood in conjunction with the footwear impressions, the blood tailed in the same direction as the uh, bloody footwear impressions, indicating the probability that the suspect who left and who left those bloody footwear impressions was probably also bleeding somewhere on the left side of his or her body. Just went back to the walkway and out into the alley where it stopped, uh, where the blood trail actually stopped, and, and the last blood drop was a concentric um, drop of blood indicating that the, uh, the source, the person who was bleeding, was no longer moving. In other words, the tailing of the trail had stopped. So why did he stop? Well, apparently, very possibly, uh, the suspect would have parked his car back there in that dark alley, and near there, we found a couple of coins. Uh, so what would the coins be doing with a concentric blood drop in a dark alley where you believe the suspect went? Perhaps he went into his pocket looking for his keys and inadvertently dropped a couple of coins. So we think that there's a very good chance now that whoever the suspect is would have parked in the alley. So it's just one thing that goes through your mind. They also showed us, uh, of course, we looked at the bodies. But again, unlike you see in television, uh, we don't go up to the bodies and go through the pockets and roll them over and do all this other stuff. We don't go anywhere near the bodies. That's the job of the coroner. But we do document with photographs and in our own writing about what we do see at the scene in regards to evidence, which includes the bodies, of course. The bodies, once there's a murder victim involved, it seems a little cold, but they are still part of the crime scene, and mm-hmm. they are considered to be evidence. So we would mark down our observations as to what we see on the body, body blood trails, the blood patterns, wounds, uh, directional stuff, clothing, folds in clothing, jewelry or lack thereof, uh, and photograph all of these things in addition to that. There we see a uh, white uh, envelope between the two victims. They were only less than five feet apart. Obviously, they were stabbed, slashed, and with, the, with probably a knife. Uh, the, the white envelope contains a pair of uh, uh, some type of glasses, it appears. There's a uh, pager there near uh, Goldman's body. Uh, and there's a number of other things. There's a, a left glove, left leather glove uh, in the center, which is interesting because we note that our suspect probably is bleeding on the left side of his body, and then we have a left glove. So perhaps somewhere in the struggle they lost the left glove, and that's how they sustained a cut on the left side, perhaps, of a hand now that the glove is here. That's just a thought. It's mm-hmm. supposition. You don't use it, but it's something that you, you uh, write down and you consider later, obviously. Uh, there are other things. There's a, um, a dark blue navy knit cap lying between the two bodies. Uh, there are, again, these same footwear impressions that walked away from the bodies around between the two bodies. There's an interesting cast off of blood on the left sole of Ronald Goldman's boot. Uh, later on, blood testing reveals that that is a mixture of blood from both victims in the form of cast off that tells us that there is one weapon. Uh, because the blood from both victims is on the, the sole of the shoe. That's corroborated by the, uh, the bloody footwear impressions of the 
soon to be found out Bruno Mali's between yeah. the two victims. The um, wounds are all uh, consistent, uh, dimensionally consistent. It tells us that there's all only one suspect. All of these things say one suspect. So we're going through all of this, and we make the coroner's call, and we send people out to check uh, trash containers, uh, web, witnesses uh, up and down the street, across the street. We want to wake up people uh, if we have to to get uh, any information we can on what someone may have heard or seen. So this goes on for some time. Uh, again, we don't have a positive identification on the victims because we don't go into their pockets until a coroner gets there. However, we strongly believe by what we see inside of the home uh, that uh, Nicole Brown Simpson uh, is the resident. Going through the uh, residence initially, the initial responders find two children sleeping on the third level to the rear. Turns out that they are uh, Nicole's children, boy and a girl. Uh, the front door is wide open. There's candles burning upstairs uh, around the tub. It looked like she was perhaps ready uh, to uh, take a bath with the candles on. There's music playing inside. There's a large butcher knife on the counter. Um, there's no prints on it, no blood. It was never taken outside, apparently. So there's a question there. Did she suspect something? Did she have a large butcher knife out for some reason or another? We don't know. What we do know is the front door is wide open and that the light is on, the porch light is on. Now, again, we have no information about anything at this point. We're worried now that uh, Bundy will open up. The media is going to uh, discover this. We're going to have some problems with that. So a commander by the name of Keith Bushy instructs myself and my partner and Phillips and Furman to go on up to Rockingham. They know where Simpson lives. At this point, we don't know whether or not Nicole is estranged, whether they're still married, whether they're divorced. We know none of this, but we do know is we have the closest of possible next to Kim, and that's O.J. Simpson, who lives, like I said, just five minutes, six minutes away. If you go on a bunny into Rockingham off of Sunset. Hold up. So that's so th- that was masterfully done because that leads us to where we were uh, a few minutes ago. And that is you and Detective Lang, uh, excuse me, Detective Van Adder and Detective Furman arriving there. One thing you, you mentioned about Furman, because he's a lightning rod about all of this. And in the book, it's one of the things that you point out. There were more than a dozen officers at the scene before he got there. And they and those officers had seen much of that evidence at Bundy, correct? Yeah, that's true. And again, uh, throughout the, this investigation and the trial, we were accused of, uh, uh, of everything uh, that uh, you could think of with the exception of crucifying Christ. It was just everything possible you could throw at the wall. Uh, we were accused of. And one of the things was that Furman was accused of planting the right-handed glove, which he later found at Bundy. Uh, there was never anything planted, no evidence, no blood. To this day, we've got a, a law professor by the name of Alan Dershowitz <laughs> using my late partner of planting blood evidence. It never happened. There's never been any evidence of these things. So this has gone on for all of these years. Uh, Everything imaginable in planning was part of it. So if, if, if he was part of planning it and Furman planted that glove, then we've got one hell of a conspiracy with a couple dozen cops that never met each other. Right. We never met Furman. We didn't know who he was. Uh, nobody planted anything 
anywhere. Well, there is there is a point about about the blood and the discovery of it that I'm saving because it it was one of the biggest are you kidding me moments of reading the book that you it dawns on you and you never really thought about it because yeah. no one ever told you but I I want to take my time to to because the blood plays a major factor in the context of why you are at his home, as you mentioned right. earlier, you are going to his home to notify him about this gruesome murder yep. that has happened. And then things change. And I want you to walk through that before we get to that point yeah. I want to make. Well, the, the going back one second here, though, the, four, the reason four of us went was that Furman and Phillips would have remained with Simpson, presumably if we had found him there. We'd make the death notification and assist him getting his kids back, interviewing him, getting to know him, because he would be a primary source of our witnesses in this investigation. Meanwhile, we'd introduce ourselves that Van Adder and I would return to Bundy and handle the crime scene. Meanwhile, Furman and Phillips would remain with Simpson, trying to do all of those little things uh, and, and getting close to him as far as getting his kids back and finding out any information uh, that he can on, on his wife. So uh, we go over there, and of course, uh, one thing leads to another, and uh, we can't get in. There's nobody answering at uh, at Rockingham. Uh, so we call the local security, and they tell us that uh, there's usually a housekeeper that lives there. Uh, nobody notified them as to Simpson leaving anywhere. Um, so the first thought we have at 5.15 in the morning is, hey, this could be an extension of the crime scene. Because nobody's calling, nobody's answering inside. There's lights on inside, lights on outside, two cars in the driveway, nobody's answering. And the security folks say that there's a housekeeper that should at least be in there. So we go over the wall, as they say, and try to get in, and nobody still answers. We go around to the back, and nobody's answering at the back, but there's two bungalows. Kato Kalen is in one. We go to that one, and and our... Uh, Simpson's daughter is uh, is in the other one. So we wake them up, and Cato says, well, he's in Chicago. Arnell, the daughter, isn't quite so sure. And then we said, well, we're if he's in Chicago, that's good. But how about uh, the housekeeper? Well, we're asking this of Arnell, and she has a key to get in, and so we don't know about the housekeeper. We want to just check inside and see if the housekeeper is okay, because nobody's answering. So Arlene, Ar, Ar, Arnell lets us in, and we check in there, and the housekeeper's bed is made. There's nobody in the house. So she says, well, maybe she's on a night off Sunday night. Nobody's around. So it all fits. Uh, everything is fine now, and we have to make that death notification somehow to, to Arnell and to Cato, and we do that. And, of course, Arnell is, uh, becomes very emotional. Um, your dad, she's got to get a hold of her dad. Meanwhile, Furman uh, had been talking to Cato Kalin, who mentioned that he was in bed talking with his girlfriend and heard a lot of thumping and, and shaking outside his bungalow towards the rear. Well, following up on the interview, Furman walks outside to the rear of the bungalow and he finds the glove, the right-handed glove, that tends to match the one at uh, Bundy. So right away, we get together and we declare this as a crime scene also. 
meanwhile, what does that entail? What what does that entail when when you do that? Is is there a protocol that you have to go through? Yeah. Well, okay. Basically, you secure the premises. We try to get another black and white, a couple of units out there to secure the street in front, secure the, all, all the premises. We ask everyone to leave. Please don't touch anything. Please don't move anything. We notify our command. We also get a criminalist and photographer on the way and just basically secure and then do a thorough search of the premises, which sometimes can take hours, if not days. I've been to crime scenes that take two and three days. So you want everybody off off the premises. You want to totally secure it. And you want your criminalist in there, and, of course, we're going to videotape. We're going to still photography. We're going to do everything possible to see if there's any other evidence. But we believe now that the other glove is the one there. So we send Furman back to Bundy to photograph that glove. And then after we photographed the one at Rockingham to see if they, in fact, are the same. And, of course, they were indeed the same, one left, one right-handed. I believe it was Isotoner uh, leather gloves. So this this is evidence. This means that perhaps the killer, whoever it is, uh, returned back to Rockingham. Well, right about now, the sun is coming up, and we see another blood trail tailing from the Rockingham gate right up the driveway and into the end of the uh, house. And right there, we see a white Bronco parked at kind of a funny angle by the Rockingham gate. We go out towards the rear, and right at the rear of the Bronco, we find the beginning of the blood trail. Uh, there's a little blood on the uh, handle, the door handle on the mm-hmm. left side. It appears to be blood. There's some other blood around, and looks, looks to be possibly inside of the Bronco. So, again, we now extend the crime scene investigation out into the street to be inclusive of the, of the Bronco. Uh, at the same time... Phil Van Adder leaves to get a warrant. We believe we have probable cause to secure the premises. Now we need a warrant. So he's going to have to go back and get a hold of the district attorney's office. They're going to have to put together a warrant uh, while we secure the premises uh, for, to search for any anything else. And obviously, we're going to be there a while. Right. That's going to be Phil's purview. Meanwhile, I return to Bundy. And I start my uh, crime scene investigation uh, at Bundy. So, you, <laughs> this is this is the part where it's kind of one of those ah moments. I had one of those probably close to midnight uh, in Florida reading this book, and here it is. Detective Lang talks about how when they get to Rockingham, they get to OJ's house. And they're there to notify him that his his ex-wife, wife whatever, had been murdered. And while they are there, they notice blood. Blood is on the outside of this very weirdly parked SUV. And as the sun comes up, they notice blood droplets coming from the Bronco going into O.J. Simpson's house. And you heard throughout the trial that this blood was planted. It had been tampered with. And they did this to frame O.J. How they got blood inside of a Bronco that was locked, I don't know. But that blood was planted in the Bronco. Folks, they saw this just after sunup on the morning after the murders. They didn't have Simpson's blood until one o'clock the next day. <laughs> I mean, game, yeah. set, match. That's it. Yeah. 
Yeah. To this day, people don't understand that point. It's it's, it's, it's the whole case. How could you possibly plant blood if you didn't have? We didn't even have the source. He's, he's back in Chicago. When I said when I said that in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago, there were yeah. gasps in the room and people were going, yeah. "What? They yeah. didn't even have his blood. They didn't have his blood until they took him to Parker Center after they sat and asked him a few questions. The interview they did. So yeah. how the hell could you plant blood in all these places? Not to mention the Bruno Mali shoes that we we know he owned. If they yeah. didn't have it. I really think the prosecution dropped the ball. I would have made that point every time there would have been some stupid comment about blood being planted. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and a lot of other areas that maybe we'll touch on also. Uh, but there's some. They had some reasoning behind that. I don't know if you want to get into that. So let's yes, yes, later. yes. Well, well, let's let's work our way to, uh, forward here because dealing yeah. with where we are going towards. Do you want to the, get back to the airport? Yes, or? yes. So okay. let's go back to the airport now. Okay, we're back at the airport, and we have this man who's an engineer, by the way, no criminal record, no background or anything else. He's there simply to pick up his wife, who works the counter at American Airlines. He sees Simpson removing items from this small half-moon-shaped travel bag, placing them, shoving them down into this trash container, and going inside and, and knows nothing about anything because the bodies hadn't even been discovered. So we, we move ahead into the trial. We're in March, I think it's towards the end of March, and the same witness happens to be watching the trial on television, and a skycap I'd mentioned, James Williams, is testifying. And he's testifying that, yeah, when I, I helped him unload the car and everything else, and the last I saw Mr. Simpson, he was standing by a trash container uh, to the left uh, of, the, uh, of the entrance, and then that was it. So after he hears this testimony and he realizes that the defense, who he's already talked to, never got back to him, he's beginning to see the picture of what really occurred here, that the timing mentioned by the uh, media uh, just the day after on Monday of the murders was off by an hour or so like that. So he's thinking, well, maybe the prosecution wants this information (laughs) because we're still looking for this little bag and and all the things that may have been in it. And we don't know anything about this until he calls me one day on the day of the trial that Mr. Williams testified. He calls me on a break in my office. He gives me the story. He says, yeah, I saw Simpson emptying out this little bag and shoving stuff down in the, in the trash container. Well, to this day, people are saying, where's the knife? Where's the shoes? Where's the clothing? Well, how about that? So I couldn't be more excited. Why right? Why would they not call him? Well, that's, let me give the rest of this then. So I get this guy. I say, where are you now? Can you meet us at LAX? He says, sure. So he leaves work, and he meets us down there. I fly down there with a photographer. We do a walkthrough, get the statement, take all these pictures and everything else. We get a hold of the people at LAX. Uh, this is in March of 95, so we go back, what, six, seven, nine months earlier. Yeah of something that was put into a trash container. There are three pickups daily to two local landfills. What are the chances of finding anything? Well, it's nil and nil. It's not going to happen. But I said, that doesn't matter, really, because we've, we've got now this, perhaps we've answered this question, what did he do with these items of evidence? Shoes, knife, clothing. So I, I'm all excited. I write up the statement, background this man, is a very, very good witness, very credible, no backgrounds, criminal, anything else. No reason not to tell the truth. He's already contacted the defense. 
So I rush into Marcia, and I tell her this, and she just looks at me and says, no, I don't think so. It's a one-on-one. I said, what do you mean one-on-one? Well, there's nobody to, to back up his stuff. You don't need that. Who cares? <laughs> I, I was flabbergasted. Wow. Well, the, the fact is, she didn't want a whole lot of stuff in there investigated by LAPD and brought out by LAPD because they'd have to be on the stand testifying to it. And she knew, like everyone else do, this is LAPD on trial. This is Rodney King all over again. This is the L.A. riots. These are these racist, evidence-planning, lying cops <laughs> that this jury hates. Now, some of that was correct because the jury did hate us. Wait, tell tell me the story. We we when you were talking about being and, and I'm I know I'm jumping ahead. We'll jump back here, but it's just just it's anecdotally it, it it's entertaining. You talked about sitting in the courtroom yeah. and trying to be polite and making eye contact with the right. ju- jurors. Yeah. Tell t- well, talk I, about I, that. I was on the stand for eight days, okay, and eight long days. And during my testimony, you have to put on the police who introduce evidence. Uh, that's just the rules of evidence and how they're introduced. And they, they, you have to tell them a story about how you found this particular evidence and, and what you did with it and and the fact that, you know, the police are doing that job. That's what they do. And during that eight days, there were like 25 sidebars. And that's when the attorneys, they call a recess, and the attorneys go to the sidebar with the judge, and they discuss one point or another and what to do with it. Well, when this happened, there's a camera Live camera coverage above the jury. They never show the jury. But I'm sitting perhaps 10 feet from the jury box, and you sit there, and there's, you hear the old expression, air pin drop, which you could. And every now and again, I just glance toward the jury and, and maybe give them a half smile or just acknowledge uh, of respect that they're there and they're the jury. And you just do that out of, out of you know, to be, be respectful and letting the time pass. And every time I do that, they'd be glaring at me. I mean, glaring. I don't mean stare. I mean, glaring. Every time I would introduce evidence through Marcia, they'd just be staring at me doing the same thing. When Johnny Cochran would be crossing me, they'd be writing like crazy all of the BS that he would spout about dirty cops and cops doing this and lying and everything else. So I knew at that point that this thing was over before it really got underway. <laughs> All right. So so let's let's go back to the to the 13th. So now you've got these two crime scenes. Simpson clearly now is at minimum uh, just a suspect who, who may have knowledge at, at most. He did this and you make contact. Someone makes contact with him in Chicago. Who makes that contact? Well, uh, initially it's uh, Ron Phillips, and then uh, he called again, and I talked to him, and he said he was on his way on the next flight. And he said he would meet us there at the, at the Rockingham location. Um, in the meantime, however, I had, had to make another death notification. The worst thing that a cop can do in his career is make a death notification. Yes. But when you do it, you want to do it, and in, 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 you want to do it face-to-face. I, I didn't have a choice in this matter. I had to do it by phone because the media was already getting onto this. They would approach the Brown family who lived down in Monarch Bay in South Orange County, about two hour drive away. There's no way I could have gotten there before the media. I had to do it over the phone, which is a horrible, horrible way to do any death notification. But I had done that from Rockingham and I did it on the on the phone. And I was speaking with uh, Lou, Lou Brown, Nicole's dad. And unbeknownst to me, Denise, her sister, was on another phone listening to my conversation. 
And when I told uh, Lou that uh, his daughter was dead, I heard Denise start screaming and hollering on the southern line. I didn't realize she was on there saying, he did it, he did it, that MF did it, that son of a bitch, he killed it. O.J. killed her, he killed her. So I'm taking this in, the same time thinking about the glove, same time thinking about the blood droplets. I'm thinking, well, we got a suspect. Did he do it? I don't know. I don't. I. I for me, I'm a little different. I, I need everything, and we don't have everything. We're far from getting everything, but he has got to be considered now some kind of a possible suspect. So, so this is this is when uh, we all kind of woke up and, and said, you know, we got something going on here. But Simpson's coming back. We've arranged to, to have a warrant. Bill went to get a warrant so we can search his residence, and we're going to interview him when he gets back. Now, this is another part that a lot of people didn't understand when you have a situation like this and you're trying to get more information, you're trying to solidify what you already have, there's different ways to approach different personalities. When you have a clearly sociopathic individual, completely into themselves, wanting to run the show and everything else, you don't hard-ass them. You don't go good cop, mm-hmm. bad cop. Mm-hmm. You don't confront them with evidence that you don't have. So you do what's called an interview. The other would be an interrogation. You bang your book on the on the table like you see on TV, and you swear, and you scream, and you That goes nowhere with a sociopath, a narcissist like O.J. Simpson was. All he's going to do is invoke. He's going to say, screw you. I'm here to give you guys I'm trying to help you, and you're accusing me of this and that. Right. I don't need this. I want to see my lawyer. Right. We have just lost him. However, if you interview him and you look for inconsistencies, and if he wants to run this conversation, you allow it. Let him talk. That's what happened here. And during 33 minutes, he's given us like 12 inconsistent statements, all the way from some of them being inculpatory to bleeding at the scene to parking his, his vehicle when he went over there in the alley behind and that's where the blood leads to. By the way, you know, uh, before straight, b- before you go on, because straight, the, the statements from an inculpatory yeah. stuff that they never used. Well, and they never and, used this statement, and then the the uh, the nonsense with the uh, tap dance is obvious in this in this tape. They never used any of this stuff. It's just absolutely amazing. Well, you and in the book, you you the book spells out because the transcript of the interview is yeah. in the book as well. And he admits to, among other things, he admit, he admits to parking his Bronco there when he goes over to Nicole's house. He admits that the way that the Bronco was parked at his house is 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 that way because he parked it that way. Uh, he gave about three stories about how he cut his finger. It was a glass in Chicago. It was on his cell phone. My golf game is not great, but I've never cut myself doing it. Apparently, he's found a way to do that because he said he cut himself playing golf. I mean, there were inconsistencies aplenty as you guys spoke with him for, what, nearly three hours? Well, the initial interview was only 30 minutes. Okay, okay. That one thing that wasn't, that you don't mention, and that's uh, you read between the lines a little bit, what else were we trying to do during that interview? Well, we knew we were going to serve a warrant. Mm-hmm. And when you serve a warrant, and particularly a murder suspect's house, you want their cooperation. If you can get it, you never know where it's going to lead to. Right. So we had this goodwill with Simpson. We're playing his game. You start screaming and hollering, and I'm going to give you the time of day. What we wanted, on, in addition to his statement, we wanted to photograph his still bleeding middle left finger. That's evidence. Right. He was bleeding while he's sitting there. He got a band aid on it. He was still bleeding. 
We want his fingerprints. We want photographs of his entire body. We want to get his blood, obviously, because it's the, the core of the whole case. None of these things we would have gotten without his cooperation unless we went and got a warrant. By the time you get a warrant, you're, you're, just, you're, you're wasting hours. Uh, different things happen that are going to put you out if you don't do it right now. We don't need four or five or six more hours because we got a lot of work to do. Right. It might even take longer than that to get a warrant. So all we have now is his cooperation and his goodwill. Not just forgetting the blood and his prints and everything else and photographs of the finger, but the medical treatment of the finger, which is also evident, photographs of it and all that stuff. But we're going to have his goodwill when we get back to Rockingham. So I tell him at the end, we're doing all this stuff. We got all this blood and everything else. And I said, by the way, we got a warrant for your house. And I know it's going to put you out, and I feel kind of bad about that. But, you know, maybe you could help me out and we can get through this thing if I meet you over there. Is that okay? He says, fine, I'll help you out. So we go back to his house at Rockingham, and we've now got the warrant, and we're doing the search. So he's walking through the house with me. Now, is, is this good at all, all different uh, investigations? Are you going to do this all the time? No. The evidence is going to dictate how you handle the particular investigation. If you have a narcissist, you play it out. He's now my buddy here. He's going to walk through me and help me out finding this, that, and the other. So we go up into his bedroom, and I'm going through his closet. And I said, uh, Joe, can you show me what you were wearing last night? And he's not going to point to a pile of bloody clothing. <laughs> right. He's going to say, yeah, I had those uh, that pants on and shirt and everything else. He said, this here? He said, yeah. Well, he knows there's not going to be anything there of any evidence we value. So he point, I said, what, uh, what kind of shoes? What shoes were you wearing last night? He says, I was wearing those Reeboks over there. So I pick up this pair of Reeboks, and I turn them upside down, and clearly this is not the blood pattern that we have from the footwear impression at the scene. But he says he was wearing them. I said, are you sure he had these on last night? He said, yeah, those are mine. I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them if it's okay with you. He says, yeah, that's no problem. So he's thinking, well, big deal. You, there's no blood or anything else on them. Uh, you can have it. He says, you can take anything you want. And I said, listen, I appreciate your cooperation. Well, why did I take the shoes? Because at the crime scene, we measured these footwear impressions, and they were size 12. If these are size 12 through his own admission, that's inculpatory evidence. Right. If they're size 10, that's exculpatory. You can put that up at trial and say he couldn't have done it because he wore size 10. They're size 12 at the crime scene. So I took those and booked them through his own admission. They're his to size them. Not to say he was warned or the murders or anything else. Without that statement... We don't know what his shoe size is. Again, would we have to go through a court order? And a, no, through his own admission, though, we got these shoes that are size 12, the same size as the suspect. This is what you get with a narcissist when you cooperate and you play this game out. A lot of people don't understand this. They just watch too much television. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, and I knew we were going to do this. I mean, it from the afternoon of the 12th all the way through basically 24 hours later, it took us about an hour to get here. And the two major pillars, I guess you can say, in this entire saga after the murders, with all due respect to the victims and their families, were one, the discovery that this could be Simpson. And then, of course, most of America became aware about the murders of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman and Simpson's history with his wife when the Bronco chase happened. 
And I think I want to I want to pause here because I want to spend some time talking about that, giving some, as I did in the beginning, timeline on what happened leading up to there from the time that he leaves Parker Center to the time that he's expected to turn himself in. And the gentleman on the line with us, I'm sure you recognize his voice. He's the one on the phone with OJ as he's taking a leisurely cruise down the five, going back to his estate where thankfully they were able to end it without tragedy. So uh, can we do that? Can we we make a part two about the the car ch- the bronco chase certainly all right so what we'll do is you know we'll wrap this and then uh and then start that but before we before we wrap this part of the conversation as someone who had been a detective for so long and who had worked so many crime scenes and other high profile crimes before you got to this one when you watched so much evidence be dismissed, pun intended, I mean, take us back to what you were feeling watching this and seeing the loss, knowing that you guys are screwing this. You're not using things that'll help. And that'll be the, the last question in this part of it. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you never have too much evidence in a murder case. What's so rare about this particular case, we nicknamed it the turkey on a platter because of all the evidence, but also lack of exculpatory evidence. Normally, 95% of any murder investigation, you're going to have something exculpatory. Once the investigator finds out what that is, it's only going to strengthen your investigation. This case had absolutely no exculpatory evidence pointing to any, any kind of innocence on the part of Simpson. Everything went in one direction that was inculpatory. Why they wouldn't use this, and part of this reason is, is again, it's LAPD on trial. They knew that in front of this jury who despised the LAPD. And of course, the Furman nonsense certainly didn't help. In the end, when he's on the stand, he pleads <clears> the fifth <throat> when asked if he plants evidence. fact is, he did not plant any evidence. No one did. He was advised uh, to say that by his attorney, but that pretty much ended the trial at that point. But boy, the, you can't play games with this. Evidence is going to be put on, and the, the prosecution, if, if they had a theory... Behind us, perhaps they should have shared that with us. Mm-hmm. Archer should have said something about it, so we were on the same page. I can understand some of that. If you just want to go with the blood, which was the, at the core of the evidence in the case, that's fine. But all of this other circumstantial stuff goes all in one direction and builds a case against this guy. And there's like 20 different areas uh, Clay, that we haven't even gotten into. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's still coming. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I want to take my time. So, no, no, we're going to take our time. Because, again, it's a re-education. I think people yeah. learned things about this section of it that they did not know. The chief among them being about when the blood was actually taken from this guy and yeah. versus when, when they saw it. And, obviously, the, the car chase is what we'll deal with in this next part, but specifically you, you there. One word I want to say really quick. Sure. You mentioned the word education. Yes. When they come out with these movies and these TV things and these series and all this other nonsense, it's not to educate, it's to entertain. Correct. And that's what Hollywood does, and that's one big reason people never got any of this stuff. Well, we're, we're going to continue. We're, we'll do a part two with, uh, with Detective Lang leading up to the car chase and spend time talking just about that and then move. And, and we're not going to get too much into the trial after it starts, but there's still a lot of other evidence and some of the behind-the-scenes things that you may not know about. But but let me say this as we wrap this section. Go buy that book. It is an entertaining, informative read about this. And it's sad, too, because I think about this fairly young woman with young children 
who had her life stolen. And this young man who was doing nothing more than being a good guy lost his life because he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And hardly anyone even talks about those people anymore because there's so much conversation about Simpson. But we will continue with Detective Lang. There will indeed be another part two to this conversation. We'll talk about the slow speed chase that most of us remember. Man, that was that was an interesting Friday. So that conversation with Detective Lang will happen on part two of our conversation. Podcasts have become a great way to get radio on demand. If you've wanted your own podcast, the time to call us is now. This year, Podcast 225 will be launching new shows and yours can be one of them. You won't have to build your own website and you'll be able to use professional broadcast equipment that will make your show sound amazing. If you'd like to know more, call 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Be a part of the on-demand audio movement today. Clay Young here with John Conroy, the founder and owner of Pest Stop, your do-it-yourself pest control solution. So this is the time of the year that people are out around the pool or grilling or entertaining guests, and fleas are there, and that's a problem. Oh, yeah. And it's going to become more of a problem if all you're putting down is a product that's going to kill the adults Mm -hmm. because all they're going to do is come right back out of the pupa stage about seven days later, and you're going to be pissed. I hear you. So what's the solution? Well, the key to it is applying a product that contains an insect growth regulator to kill the egg and the larva so we break the life cycle and that's why you need to come see us fantastic and listen folks if you tell them clay sent you or if you tell them you heard this ad you can save 10 percent on the product okay john where can i get it well in metairie we're located at 3512 severn avenue next to the pepper mill on the north shore we're at 1417 north highway 190 that's in the same shopping center as sherwin williams and villaries floors and on the west bank we're on the palco just past the harvey bridge don't forget to mention this ad and save 10 percent this is the clay young show all right detective lang did a great job as always we've gotten to know each other over the last few years and dare i say have become friends and i think that his perspective on this being so close to it is always intriguing and he is a very detail-oriented person and again there are people out there who believe Simpson did not do this and everyone's got a right to their own opinion I disagree but as, as I said to you in the open I thought this the third stint in court over the robbery the punishment did not fit the crime but in this case you know probably shouldn't have been out on the streets to do that anyway and the blood thing isn't that something that they didn't even have his blood yet they were accused of planting it (laughs) all right check out other shows on podcast 225.com the waiting room podcast the Generations podcast, that's on hiatus now, but you can check out the shows done by former Baton Rouge Police Chief Jeff LaDuff there. And the We BR podcast, hosted by the Mayor's Women's Commission here in Baton Rouge. And we talk about subject matter, as you can tell from this show, that isn't just about Louisiana or even this region, but about the country, such as this Simpson case, which is something that has captivated many around the country and really in other parts of the world. 
for 25 years. And the seminal moment that brought many people's attention to this, as I referenced earlier, was the slow speed chase. And that is where we will pick it up with Detective Lang on the next edition of The Clay Young Show. And if you get a chance, go out and buy that book, Evidence Dismissed. I bought mine. I think you should read what he says. It's a fascinating read. And friends of mine who've gotten the book have talked about how well done it is and the things that you will learn from it. So check out Evidence Dismissed. You can get it on Amazon. Y'all have a great one. And thanks for being here listening to The Clay Young Show. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.